Hey everybody, this is Matt, the pastor of Worship and Arts here at All Souls. I wanted to give you fair warning on the front end that we did have a battery go out near the end of the sermon, so we were not able to record that piece. It was just a minute, most of it's still here, still makes sense, still worth listening to, but if you get to the end and it feels like it's not really the end, that's why. Peace, friends. Hope to see you soon. If you are new with us tonight, welcome. Um, next week, right after church, we're going to have a brief uh, hello and talk to you a little bit about some things coming up in the fall. So uh, plan on staying after. Well, this summer, we have been uh, studying what does it look like to be a good neighbor. We're getting ready to move into a new neighborhood. And we've been asking uh, from Scripture what does that look like? How do we love our neighbor well? And tonight's passage takes us in a little different direction. I didn't realize it at first, but all the uh, passages that I've chosen so far were pretty much explicitly about loving a neighbor outside of the community. Tonight's passage actually is more about loving within the community for the sake of the neighbor. Um, the neighbor isn't really mentioned in this letter to the Philippians. You remember, it's the first church planted in this old Roman city. Uh, and it, it was a very diverse, vibrant, tense city. But the idea of witnessing to the city is all through the letter. At one point, Paul says he wants you to be shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. And so rather than focusing on external ministries, he focuses on the quality of their life together and particularly the beauty of their unity together as a way of witnessing to the beauty of the gospel. He knows that few things are as attractive as people living together in loving, joyful unity. And he probably also knows that few things are as unattractive as a community riven by conflict. Yesterday afternoon, got my, my hair cut, and this wonderful friend I've uh, gotten to know over the years, her name's Sarah, and we, you know, as you do, you start talking about lots of things, and yesterday I said, you know, Sarah, you, you're a deeply spiritual person, and, you know, we've talked about coming to church, things like that, and I said, you you're not going to go to church, are you? <laughs> and she said, okay, no. And, and I, I said, well, tell me a little bit about your journey with that. And she said, well, I've gone a few times, um, and every church I went to, it just felt like there were the, it was clicky, and there were these camps and these groups, and I never could figure out how to, how to break in. There was something about the disunity of the church that kept her from wanting to be neighbored. Uh, that morning, yesterday morning, I was walking out of swim practice, and um, uh, a lady that I swim with, she, she came and she said, uh, hey, you're a pastor, aren't you? And I never know where that conversation's going to go. <laughs> and uh, she said, you know, uh, I... I've been thinking about God a lot lately, and I'd, I'd like to come to church. And um, so we, we talked about that, and, and I said, so tell me a little bit about your journey with, uh, with the church. And 
She said, you know, I was involved with one many years ago, and then it imploded over relational conflict. And she said, I just haven't been back since. It's just too painful. Um, So I think this idea in Philippians is one of the ways that we neighbor well, that we love our neighbor well, is by creating healthy relational families uh, where neighbors can come in and be healed and grow. Now, this passage offers just a beautiful vision of what this kind of community looks like. Uh, Verse 1 is kind of the foundation of it. He says, if, and in the Greek that could be translated since, since there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. It's very clear that the congregation is going through some tension, some conflict. You read about it in chapter 4. There's a fight between two leaders in the church. You read about it right here. There's some tension and discord. And Paul says, for starters, let me remind you that you actually do have the resources to work through this kind of tension in a healthy way. It's because of your relationship with Christ. It's because you find encouragement in that relationship. It's because you find comfort in the love of Christ. It's because you share in the spirit of Christ. Because you're connected to all of that, you actually have the resources to do what's really hard to do, and that is to stay in and keep pressing and repairing relationships. I was thinking about that this morning, and it's like Paul is saying, I know loving well is not natural at all. I know that the tendency among all human beings is this kind of relational entropy, that all relationships, if left untended, go towards fragmentation and separation and tribalism and all that stuff. But, but you are different because you are in Christ. You have the resources to work through these things. And in writing like this, he, he is anticipating the findings of neuroscientists about how our brains relate. Um, a number of you are reading some books about that that you've been sharing with me, and they're fascinating. I don't know much about neuroscience. Um, Donna Hicks, in her book Dignity, summarizes some recent findings uh, in neuroscience about how we relate. Human beings apparently have two desires hardwired into our brain. One is the desire to self-protect, to protect from harm. The other is the desire to reach out and connect with others, to find security in relationship, to be seen, recognized, and valued. And that's just, God put that into our DNA, this desire to protect myself from hurting and to move towards you and connect. Our instinct for self-preservation, however, tends to dominate over our instinct to connect. Uh, Hicks says this, she says, the limbic system of our brains unconsciously responds to a perceived threat by emotionally hijacking us. 
when we perceive that we are being offended or hurt by others, our instinctive, self-protective hardwiring tells us that what matters most is our own well-being and survival, not the survival of the relationship. We flee or fight. So apart from Christ's love, apart from our relationship with him, we're hardwired to protect and flee or fight whenever we feel a threat. Another book that a friend shares is called Renovated by Jim Wilder. And this is a book about neuroscience and spiritual formation, something I hadn't thought much about either. He says that a common model of the spiritual life is read and obey. Read what the Bible says and do it. But the problem is that often doesn't result in transformation. Then Waldo says the classical model does not match the way the brain works. The brain has attachment love, not the will, as its central feature. Paul tells the Ephesians that Jesus dwells in our hearts through a faith that is rooted and grounded in love. This teaching is in harmony with neuroscience. We're guided not just by the will, but by the most importantly powerful thing the brain knows, who we love. We are talking about attachment love, love which comes from the heart. And then a lot of the rest of the book is about how this loving attachment with Christ that Paul describes in verse 1 helps us love our enemy and overcome the fight-or-flight response. So what Paul's kind of laying the foundation for here is is a very important, I, I think, idea. He's saying, because of your relationship with Christ, because you've known the comfort of his love, because you shared in his spirit, because of your, your love for him, you have a capacity to work through relational problems that others might not have. I think there's a timing to all of this we might consider. And one of the things these books talk a lot about is how when that attachment with God is broken through some kind of a trauma or a wound, then those resources are not as accessible to us when we get into conflict and we revert back and get stuck in the fight-or-flight mode. So if you're in a relational situation right now where you feel kind of stuck or terrified or unable to move through it, one thing you might just do is sit in verse 1 for a while and just ask God to show you you know, do you feel like you have the strength and the love in him that you need to, to move into this relational challenge? And maybe, maybe you need some healing before you're going to be able to really love well. And that's what the church is supposed to do. Then Paul uses four phrases to describe a loving, healthy, unified church family. Being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord, being of one mind. The Greek word for the same mind is a little difficult to translate. Sometimes it means to all be on the same side. It doesn't mean to think identically. The word for being of one accord literally is to be one-souled or one-spirited. 
And so the vision that he's painting of a healthy family here is not so much that everybody thinks exactly alike. Read the New Testament. Everybody didn't think exactly alike. The vision is that there's this one-souledness, this sense of all being on the same team, despite our differences, that's rooted in our relationship with Christ. So Paul is addressing a situation where relationships are breaking down in the church. People are pulling apart. And it raises the question, when that happens, how, how do we move from breaking apart to one-souledness? How do you move from verse 1 to verse 2? How do you overcome that human tendency for everything to fragment, to move towards a deep-spirited relational connection? Well, the rest of the passage describes this. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Today, I think we might, we might say Paul is talking about our egos. And if you think about a relationship maybe that you're in right now that's, that's kind of causing you a problem, maybe that you could kind of help apply it here. I think what, he, what he's saying is we, one way to approach a relational problem is to start with my ego. Hey, look. You disrespected me. I demand your respect. I have rights and I have needs and you're going to meet them. Do you got it? How does that usually go? The other way is to start with a focus on the other person. Think of the other as more significant than yourselves. Look for the interests of others. I don't think this means our own needs don't matter. I, I think it means that there's kind of a shift. And again, this comes from being in relationship with Christ. There's a shift of instead of, I have needs here, I am hurting here, I demand that you satisfy my needs, to, okay, I wonder what's going on in my friend. And if possible, moving to a posture of humble listening. And if you get to a place where you can hear their fears, and their desires and they can hear yours there's a beautiful kind of aroma of Christ that starts to emerge out of all of this now one of the things that I'd say is this is really hard <laughs> this takes a lot of work and so I, I, I don't know about the timing of this in your life. There are times when you just don't have the strength to press into a relationship. There are times when you've got to work on this relationship before you can work on that relationship. I'm not trying to put you under this guilt trip and say, go through all the relationships that are broken in your life right now and go do all you can. You just can't. But when the Spirit leads you to that place, this is what it looks like. It starts from a decentering of the ego from the throne and moving out of that limbic system of protect, 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 
to, I wonder where you are. Easier said than done. Have this mind in yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. It's just maybe the most beautiful summary of our Lord's sacrificial life and death that we have in the Bible. And Paul says that our Lord's life, death, and resurrection is the arc of a healthy relationship. It is the pattern of healthy relating. It it, it is the way in which we decenter our egos and move into another in love. Jesus doesn't cling to his rights. I mean, glory, you know, in a way, is bound up in respect. If anybody had the right to be respected or glorified it was him and he didn't cling to his rights respect is such a big deal in relationships isn't it a researcher went into a prison and interviewed uh, folks that had committed violent crimes I think it was all men and asked them why did you act the way that you did and the vast majority I think it was over 70% said because I felt disrespected We just have a need to be respected, and it's so hard when you feel that an organization doesn't respect you, or a spouse, or a roommate, or a coach, or a teacher. It's just so hard, and I think it trips up those things in our brain that say, I'm not safe here. So the pattern of Jesus is to not demand to be respected, but to move towards those he came to save. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name above every name. So to the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So, so maybe this is how this all fits into neighboring. One of the oddest things in the world is a community of people that are shaped by the arc of the cross in the way they relate to each other. It's staggering. If we even get close to it, we get a whiff of Jesus because it's so unusual. That's sort of patterned around of this self-giving, self-emptying, self-sacrificial. I don't demand that you respect me. I move towards you, even to the point of death, and that God honors that with new life. But before we just kind of leave it there, I, I just want to say this, and, and this is something I think you probably are thinking of as well. This can be parodied in a very sick way. There is a kind of relating where you simply ignore your needs, never share your needs, allow another person to take advantage of you, even to the point that it destroys you. And some people think, well, that's what Jesus did. 
today we'd call that just an abusive relationship. And I, I think we can assume that God's inspired word is not calling on the, the central mystery of the universe to illustrate an abusive relationship. I think we could just assume that. Well, so what is the point? I think the point is that when you are moving away from self-protective withdrawal to connection and trust and repair, it will require a death. That any kind of reconciling work will require a death on both parties. It might be as simple as the death of, you know, I'm just going to let that go. <laughs> Love covers a multitude of sins. We're all stressed out here. I don't need to make a federal case of it. I, you know, I was hurt by that. I'm just going to let it go. It's not a big deal. That's kind of a death. It's dying to, hey! A another kind of death uh, might be doing some inner work before you do anything and wondering what is going on? Why is this relationship so difficult for me? Why is it much bigger inside of me than it is outside of me? What is going, why is there so much power here? Why does this person have such a capacity to trigger me? Why is it that my relationship with Christ isn't enough to help me move through this towards love? That kind of work takes death. That's not easy work. Or lastly, the death might mean actually at some point going, having the conversation, doing the work, even though that feels threatening. 